And on behalf of the chapter, a very warm welcome to St. Paul's Cathedral for this, the last of the Institute debates in this series, which is devoted to the character influence of Jesus. I could try and stand here now and tell you some witty stories or give you a quick resume of his life. We all know quite a lot about him, and so much has been written and painted and discussed that nothing I could possibly say would add anything to the debate. However, the speakers who are alongside me, I think I can promise you with what they've got to say, you'll be in for an excellent and stimulating evening. The Institute is at the centre of ethical discussion here in the City of London, and it has some considerable pulling power. We've had Prime Ministers and Archbishops standing on this platform, debating and talking about matters which really concern people. And as you know, the encampment which is outside has picked up on a number of the issues which the Institute has already debated and uh, indeed, we, a report has just been issued uh, just a couple of days ago uh, on ethics in the city. I'll formally introduce our distinguished panellists in a moment, but for those of you who've not been to one of our debates, let me just explain the format to you. In a moment, I'm going to ask both of our speakers to introduce the subject, and after that, we will take questions from the floor. Now, if you have a question, please um, write it on the back of your leaflet and hold it up to be collected. Once it's been collected, it will then go to a point over there, and through the great wonder of technology, it should, it will, it should appear on the screen in front of me here, and then I will put the questions to the panel. If that breaks down for any reason, you can rest assured that people will be scurrying towards me with pieces of paper. We'll collect questions until about 7.30, and please do try to keep them brief, as it means we can get slightly more of them in. We'll end promptly at 8 o'clock, but before you leave, do please give generously to the retiring collection for the Bible Society, who do amazing work bringing the Bible to people who have no access to it. And so, to our panel. Robert Beckford is an educator, author, and award-winning broadcaster. He is a firm believer in teaching for social change and has worked in adult literacy, taught trainee priests and ministers, and worked with offenders at Birmingham Prison. He has also taught at Oxford Brookes University and at Warwick University, and is now at Canterbury Christchurch University. He is the author of numerous books on religion, culture, and politics, and has presented BBC and Channel 4 documentaries, including The Hidden Story of Jesus, Decoding the Nativity, and God Bless You, Barack Obama. Lucy Winkett is rector of St. James's Piccadilly and was formerly a canon of St. Paul's, indeed the first woman priest to be appointed at the cathedral. She is a founding advisor for Theos, the public theology think tank, and writes, speaks, and debates on gender, art, and religion, and I should say music as well. She is a regular contributor on Radio 4's Thought for the Day and was commissioned by the Archbishop of Canterbury to write his recommended Lent book for 2010, Our Sound is Our Wound, which became a bestseller. She was also a student of Robert Beckford's in Birmingham, and I will think you will see that there is a wonderful chemistry between these two people. 
Would you please then welcome our panel? So I should have invited you to move to the left. <laughs> An obscure town in the Middle East, a fermenting political situation, a people under occupation by the mighty Roman Empire, the surrounding desert full of preachers, magic workers, soothsayers, hundreds of prophecies every month about the end of the world being imminent. It's into this ferment a boy was born to a young unmarried Jewish woman. His birth was scandalous, and after childhood obscurity, he grew up to be a traveling preacher and healer in what is now northern Israel and the West Bank. He never wrote any tracts or books. He had no coherent philosophy. He did not build any buildings. He didn't found a school or a movement or a political party. He wasn't ordained. He held no positions of responsibility or influence in the institutions of his day. He refused to fight the occupying forces despite much persuasion and was in the end executed as a criminal. His was a political death as he was crucified. A religious death would have meant he would have been stoned. Outside the city wall of Jerusalem, largely it seems because he was thought to be a threat to the powerful religious elite of his day and weak political government as he'd roused the adulation of the crowd. And yet this unmarried Jewish carpenter's influence is so great that centuries later we're in a huge and imposing building built in his name to the glory of God. Over two billion people around the world, almost a third of the entire population of the earth, call themselves followers of his. And the name Jesus, just in these last few weeks, has been on the lips of protesters, bankers, journalists, and is once again the stuff of conversations in the pub, as the world economy rocks on its axis and Europe's currency is in crisis. For once... For once, this is a more accurate reflection of the spirit of Jesus of Nazareth, who said a lot more about money than he did about sex. We're here tonight to talk about Jesus of Nazareth, the character we find in the pages of the Gospels. As soon as we start to say, Jesus Christ, we're already doing theology. Christ, as you will know, is a Greek word meaning anointed Messiah. So when we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, we're talking about the historical figure we find in the pages of the Gospels. And the first thing and the last thing that I want to say about Jesus this evening is that he as a personality is almost completely elusive. Because he left no writings, all we know about him is written by people who are trying to persuade us of something. Matthew is writing for a Jewish audience. Mark, the oldest and shortest gospel, doesn't even include the resurrection. Luke is a Gentile friend of Paul's, and John is the most philosophically advanced and arguably, along with Matthew's, the most fiercely critical of the Judaism Jesus was attempting to reform. Paul wrote letters to fledgling communities of followers of Jesus of Nazareth, although he never met him and change the emphasis of his recorded teaching. Jesus speaks constantly about the Basileia, the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is at hand. 
Paul, in all his writings, mentions it only once. How can we get to Jesus of Nazareth? What was his personality like? Was he funny? Was he kind or impatient? He was obviously charismatic. Was he a revolutionary? Why did he refuse so many times for people to claim him as the Messiah? As later, that's exactly what happened to him. Why did he tell people not to mention to anyone the things that he was saying and doing? What on earth was he trying to communicate to the situation of his day? There is no existing set of Aramaic sayings. All we have is a Greek translation of what Jesus might have said and done. The oral tradition, of course, at that time was extremely reliable. We needn't feel anxious about it. But there is very little that is absolutely verifiable. It's really important in any discussion about Jesus of Nazareth to acknowledge with deep humility that certainty is beyond our reach. It is simply not possible to know. But it's also important to say that just because there's no proof, that doesn't make the whole set of sayings or actions invalid or inauthentic. So what do we do in the face of this inaccessibility of Jesus of Nazareth? Because people could see the power that Jesus exerted over contemporary society, the tradition of making Jesus in our own image becomes a well-tried and tested one and has been happening for centuries. Giza Vermesh, the greatest living scholar on Jesus, has spent his academic life studying the Gospels and has come up with a probable list of authentic sayings based on the sentence structure, noting the Aramaic rhythms behind the Greek text. For example, I will make you fishers of people, an unusual and vivid construction, almost certainly Jesus. The phrase, the good news of the kingdom of God, a very characteristic and often repeated phrase, almost certainly from Jesus himself. Your faith has made you well, quoted a couple of times by Luke and Matthew to women and to a man born blind. The commands Jesus gives to demons and to people when he's touching them, for example, Jairus' daughter, the leader of the synagogue, Talitha kum, a genuine Galilean Aramaic saying, little girl, get up. What is there that Giza Vermesh is almost sure is editorial and not a happening in time and space? This is difficult for Christians. The stilling of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Palm Sunday, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the saying that the church has relied on. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build the church. Of course Jesus was political, and anyone who says religion and politics doesn't mix has never read the Gospels. But claiming him for one political ideology or another is, I want to argue, impossible, much as anyone would like to. It's a reductionist strategy and is an attempt to harness the influence of the reputation of Jesus for one side or another. We'll have all heard arguments on what's called the political right or the left. In the parable Jesus told of the Good Samaritan, the right argue that a key factor was that the Samaritan had enough money with him to pay for the night's lodging. 
They will also argue that the parable of the talents is an argument for economic growth and the power of the individual. I've heard arguments on the left in favour of the NHS, that the healing of the unnamed woman with hemorrhages while Jesus was on his way to see the leader of the synagogue is evidence that Jesus exemplifies healing free for all, not focused on the great and the good. As soon as you want to claim Jesus, and miraculously somehow he agrees with everything you think, Jesus will elude you. There are many instances in the Gospels where everyone's looking for Jesus. They can't find him. He's been up the mountain praying all night. Or he's had to get into a boat because the crush on the shore is so great. The crowd try to throw him over a cliff at Nazareth, but he escapes. Another time, they try and grab him and make him king, and he runs away into the hills. It's in his own time and at his own instigation that he sets his face towards Jerusalem and he goes there, knowing what is waiting for him there. There's an urgency about him where he seemingly talks constantly about the kingdom of God being near, upon, within you. He has a poetic spirit, evidence in his metaphors and stories. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. A millstone around your neck, a camel and the eye of a needle, salt without savour, let the dead bury their dead, love your enemies. Jesus is excoriating about self-righteousness. Whenever you think you're right, whenever you think you have the right interpretation of Christianity and all the others are wrong, that's when Jesus is at his most critical and verbally violent. Jesus drove the money changers from the temple. Why? Because they were exploiting the poor by changing money from one currency to another to pay the temple tax. The quotation he uses of a den of thieves, quoting Hebrew scripture, implies dishonest commercialism. Why was money being changed anyway? To pay a temple tax in Jewish currency, not Roman. Also insisting on unblemished animals for sacrifices, hence the pigeon sellers that he overturns the tables of. Again, exploiting the poor. If a woman couldn't afford a lamb for the sacrifice after she'd given birth, then a pigeon was accepted. So the pigeon sellers were directly targeting those who were poor. But again, Jesus will be elusive. I would love to claim him as a proto-feminist. His treatment of women was radical and extraordinary and freeing for women. But he also was a man of his time. And this has been a godsend for a predominantly male establishment which has wanted to exclude women from positions of power for centuries. I find a radical in Jesus, yes, but a radical in the original sense of the word. One who has deep, deep roots in the life of God, who is urgently trying to communicate by actions and words what God is like, predominantly what God is like, and also, perhaps more challengingly, what it could be like to be human. I find someone who lived a life of radical compassion and forgiveness, passionate commitment to everyone who was suffering, those in power and those without power, and a determination to be a loving, healing presence in the world as it is. Jesus of Nazareth wasn't original in much of what he said. 
he quoted a very common saying at the time, and one that is shared by many religions, the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Treat others as you would like to be treated. It's an ethic of empathy, attempting to walk in another's shoes, which will make us live differently. Jesus quoted this. It's not original to him. And he endorsed it, but he also took it further. Jesus said, not so much do to others as you would have them do to you, but do to others as I have done to you. And he said this right before he washed his disciples' feet and broke bread and shared wine. Followers of Jesus of Nazareth are not known by their recitation of the creed or by the way they dress. They're not known by their doctrinal purity or their eloquent politics. Followers of Jesus of Nazareth are known by the love they have for God and for their neighbor. Imitating Jesus of Nazareth would mean that the life of an agrarian, unmarried male carpenter is the icon of what human life should be like. This is clearly nonsense. It's the meaning of Jesus' life that's so challenging for everyone who tries to live in the world as it is. It's a way of life that is deeply radical in that it's rooted in the nature of God in whose image human beings are made. It's a way of life that is constantly trying to find ways to wash one another's feet, however we can, and whoever's feet they are. Thank you. How we approach Jesus is very much determined by who we are as individuals and the stories of our people. So I want to begin with a personal story and also a meta-narrative, a theme that has informed how African-Caribbean Christians have approached the biblical text and the story of Jesus. The personal narrative is this. When I was a young boy, I wanted to be a professional football player, but my mother didn't feel that what, that's what God had for me. She didn't think that making millions of pounds and putting her up in the life of luxury would be a good thing. Instead, she thought, she thought that God was calling me to do something specific with my life. So she began to pray. And we say in my church tradition that when your mother prays, get worried. <laughs> we also say that when your mother and her church sisters begin to pray, submit. Because you know that God is going to do something. My mother began to pray. And that year in school, God sent a new math teacher, Mr. Ralph, who was a member of the Revolutionary Communist Party. So I often say to my mother, I'm doing the work that I'm doing because you prayed and God sent a Marxist. The first point is this. In my church tradition, we're not so much concerned with who Jesus was, but what Jesus does for us today. Second narrative is a meta-narrative, one that has shaped the history of African-Caribbean people. Christianity was inscribed on empire. We received Christianity at the edge of the colonizer's sword. And as a consequence of that, we have learned to be deeply suspicious about what anybody says about Jesus because we know this to be true. People tell lies about Jesus. 
the church often misrepresents Jesus. So with those two stories, those two narratives, the personal narrative and the meta-narrative of my people, of African-Caribbean people, I want to say three things about Jesus. They put wine in this, by the way, so sir. The first thing is this. Yes, Jesus was a Jew, but he was also a colonized Jew. We know that the Roman occupation was brutal. We're told by Roman historians that what, they, what damage they didn't do through brutalizing the people through the sword and through physical damage, they managed to do it by either impoverishing them or keeping them close to death, starving them to death. We know that their time was brutal because the myth of Pantera gives us some insight to how brutal the Roman occupation was. The myth which suggests that a year before Jesus was born, the Romans went through the town where Mary lived and raped every young girl. Roman occupation was brutal, and we can't get away from that fact. Jesus was a colonized Jew. A good way of getting some insight into the psychosis that this produced is there within the New Testament, the pages upon which Jesus' story is played out. We know from Franz Fanon that there is a psychosis, a reactionary psychosis that develops amongst colonized people, women, their periods are interrupted. It's what Franz Fanon saw in his work in Algeria. Don't we have that in the New Testament? The woman with the issue of blood? We know that when people are occupied, they get mentally ill. The people that Jesus meets were possessed by demons, legion, mental illness, signs of this, the, the, the effects of this brutal occupation. Brutal occupations make people physically ill, makes them lame. Is it no surprise to us then that we find Jesus encountering people who are lame? The reactionary psychosis of this situation? Jesus was a colonized Jew. We must understand and interpret his sayings in light of that fact, in light of the Roman occupation. But as a Jew, he also knew that that wasn't the end of the story. He was raised on the stories of the Exodus. The fact that God will act in history to liberate the poor. And Jesus himself then, standing within that tradition, is one who declares good news for the poor of his day. As somebody who was raised within the Jewish tradition, he knew the tradition of the judges. And the fact that only God could be sovereign in the land, never Caesar, ne never any political power, God would have to be sovereign. As a Jew, he would also know that the Messiah was a political title. Book of Mark begins by naming the names for Jesus, and every single one of them to a Jew would have pointed to the fact that this was a political title. The Messiah was one who was going to transform the world in which people lived. As a colonized Jew, Jesus was one who understood the brutality of the Roman occupation and the fact that the good news that he, he would deliver would be 
one which challenged the political powers of the day and overturned the occupying force. Legion, the Roman occupation, as Moses crossed the Red Sea and Pharaoh's armies are drowned in the Red Sea, so Legion, the demons, Rome is cast into the river. Jesus, the colonized Jew, his message is deeply political, and we cannot ever forget the context in which his ministry takes place. Second thing I want to say about Jesus, apart from him being a colonized Jew, is that he, of course, he was a political figure. Of course, he was somebody committed to social justice. But we have been taught to misinterpret, to read the, the, the political manifesto of Jesus in a way that is highly spiritualized so we forget its political impact. The political manifesto of Jesus is set out in the Lord's Prayer, something that we all as Christians recite every Sunday morning but have completely lost touch with what it actually meant. The Lord's Prayer is Jesus' manifesto for social change. It begins by acknowledging the fact that we have one God and a God who is for all. Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowing the name of God would have shook fear into the people who are listening. Because for them, only Caesar's name could be hallowed. So going up against Caesar and saying that God's name should be hallowed was a political statement. It was, rem excuse me, it was reminding them of the tradition of the judges, of the fact that there would be no other God but Caesar. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Another statement which would have made the people realize that the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom of God could only mean justice and equality for all. Give us this day our daily bread. In a context where people were being starved to death, that was a revolutionary statement. Jesus' manifesto, feed the people, feed the people, but not only feed the people, forgive their debts. We know from first century records that the temple authorities were in cahoots with the Romans. And one of the ways in which they maintained the impoverishment of the people was to make sure that they were kept in, kept in debt to the temple authorities. They had to pay more than £14.50 to get into the temple. So when Jesus says, forgive their debts, we know that he's going up against the temple authority as well as the Roman authority. And we always get it wrong when at the end of the Lord's Prayer, we, we, we think lead us not into temptation is somehow about sin, personal sin. Instead of understanding that text in context, which is that it's demanding that we do not opt out of the struggle. Lead us not in temptation. Not about personal sin. It's about people who follow the teachings of Jesus being unwilling to stand up and be counted in the face of oppression. Jesus was a master tactician. And the, the Lord's Prayer is an example of the Jesus Manifesto. Third thing I want to say about Jesus and end with this is this. 
I don't think we can believe the church on what they say about Jesus. In my tradition, I don't think we can believe the church and what the church says about Jesus because what the church says about Jesus is very different to what the church does about Jesus, the doing of the work of Jesus. And I want to say this um, to put it in context. We know that the early church, there has been a tradition, a long history of depoliticizing Jesus. There's been a long tradition of taking away his Jewishness. In my front room when I was growing up, we had this picture of um, the Werner Salman image of Jesus. Remember that one? The Jesus with the blonde hair and blue eyes? How do you get from a first century Jew to a 20th century Aryan? What's going on? This depoliticization, this, this taking away of Jesus' ethnicity and his identity is something that the early church wrestled with. We know that they wrestled with the scandal of the cross. If Jesus was a revolutionary, if Jesus was the Messiah, why did he die the death of a common criminal? We often forget how brutal and how terrible this was as a form of punishment. I often say to my students, don't think about the cross, but instead think about Jesus being lynched. Because that's the equivalent of what it was. How do you strike fear and terror into people? A lynching is a more vivid, contemporary image that describes the scandal of the cross. The early church wrestled with this, and they knew that they had to find a way in which they could sanitize the cross. So they created a spiritual Messiah, one who saves people individually, spiritually, and doesn't have a great deal to say about the socio-political context in which people find themselves. We know that the Apostle Paul buys into this idea because he has to take the gospel internationally. And he knows that he can't be specific about who Jesus was, but instead proclaim an apocalyptic vision where God would break into history and save everybody. But by doing so, he again waters down, depoliticizes Jesus. And we know that by the time the church becomes part of the instrument of state, the book is closed. The church is brought into power and finds it incredibly difficult to be prophetic and to speak and do the work of Jesus because it too, it too now is part of the, the ruling class, part of the, the powerful people. So who is Jesus Christ? We need to look at what people who believe in Jesus do. That's where we find who Jesus Christ is. We need to look in new spaces and places outside of the church to find where people are doing the bidding of God because Jesus is alive but the church does not have the sole claim on telling us who Jesus is thank you well thank you Robert and thank you Lucy that's um an amazing amount of information that's just come our way. Um, this is your chance to pose some questions to these two remarkable people. Please don't feel uh, embarrassed if you think your question may not be theologically argued. Any questions that you have which you'd like to put forward, we'd be very grateful to receive. I have a few in front of me at the moment, and we have time for some more. Um, 
I'm going to start with one that's in front of me here, um, which says, uh, is there a tension between Lucy's elusive Jesus and Robert's political Jesus? Uh, we've heard very eloquently from both sides. And is it possible that, that both can coexist? Lucy, do you want to go first on that one? I said very clearly that I think Jesus is, is Jesus of Nazareth is elusive, um, and I, I think that's right. Uh, I also said that Jesus was political. I think what I suppose I'm, uh, if you know, if, if we we should have some we should have some kind of uh, sharper debate here, Robert. So perhaps I can um, play devil's advocate a little bit. Um, if if there is a political ideology that is so clear. Uh, from Jesus, I, either in the Lord's Prayer, as you say, or in other, in the Beatitudes, for example, if the political ideology is so clear, then what makes Jesus different, different from Karl Marx? I think, there's a, I think there's a huge difference because Jesus was, to quote Fernando Bello, a, a non-revolutionary Marxist. You know, the kind of revolution that Jesus is talking about is very different from Marxist revolution, particularly in terms of the material context that Marx spoke about, which is very different to the material context of the first century Palestine. So there, there's a big difference there. Also, we know that Jesus' revolution is a holistic one. It demands more than changes in the base and superstructure. It demands a change within the lives of people. It is a holistic approach to revolution. So for me... There are similarities, but also points of um, difference between a Marxist agenda and the agenda of Jesus. But we often use that question to water down what is a revolutionary text and a text that demands justice for the poor. Like, I've said, like I said before, if you read the text from the southern hemisphere, if you read it from the, text of the, the context of the marginalized within this country, then the revolutionary Jesus isn't a problem. So what I'm suggesting is there is an issue of social location here. Where we come out, where we position ourselves in relation to the text influences how we read it. A basic hermeneutical problem, hence the need to read it from many different locations. So for me, there, is a, there are similarities, there are differences, but we can know Jesus in my church tradition, not only from the biblical text, but from the experience of the risen Christ, what we call the pan-human capacity for super-rational ecstatic experience, or for short, charismatic experiences. No, we know, we know Jesus through those experiences, so it's not just a case of who Jesus was, first century, but who Jesus is for us here and now, and how we experience that. And would you say, I mean, I think for... for me, that I, there's nothing that I feel particularly that I would disagree about with that, but I would also say that uh, Jesus never painted a picture. He never wrote a piece of music. There's, you know, there's one tiny incident in the Gospels where we think Jesus might have sung a hymn, for example, but, you know, the last two, the, 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 the dominant cultural narrative in Europe, artistically, has been the Jesus story, has depictions of, you know, the revolutionary acts that you describe is all is 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 all of that uh, wasted, or is all of, what is the status of that? If Jesus is a, a cultural revolutionary, but it is what it is. We know that the New Testament Gospels are the reflections of the early church on the Jesus tradition. You know that's that's you know. Biblical Studies 101, we know that to be true. What I'm suggesting is that the tradition that emerges from that reflection is one that presents a 
picture of a holistic Messiah, one who is deeply connected to the political world and does not divorce that from the spiritual world. The two are conflated and are part of the same paradigm for change. And, and it is what it is. That, the reflections of the, the, the early church on the Jesus story, and we have to take there, if we, if we believe that this is the word of God or contains the word of God, then we have to take it as it is and work with it. What I'm interested in doing is asking ideological questions. Who wrote it? What was their location? How has it been used? Who's using it? How has it been used throughout history? And let there be no doubt, from the fourth century onwards, the name of Jesus has been a brutal name for many people. And it's taken the genius of subjugated people to overturn that, that, that negative association into something liberative. I think there's, there's a link there with a, with a feminist uh, hermeneutic of suspicion looking at the Gospels and asking um, where you know, most of the men in the New Testament are named, most of the women are unnamed. And why is that? Why is that the case? So there's a hermeneutic of suspicion, but staying in a hermeneutic of suspicion is 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 it not a kind of reductionist strategy to not allow the the text to go wild among the people who have power and who don't have power? I mean, it's not a there is there isn't a way in which you can ring fence the gospel, is there? And say only a certain sort of people can understand it. If the gospel is inclusive, everyone needs to be there to hear the gospel read. Otherwise. It will not be understandable. I think we have to have a dialogic imagination. I think that Christian thought throughout the ages has been about holding positions and counter positions in order to come to a greater understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And I think that that is one way in which we ensure that the gospel goes wild. However, I can't think of too many recorded incidents in history where rich, powerful Christian people have given up power. You know, that tells me something about the gospel message and and, and the social location of people who preach the gospel in some, in some locations. You know, what I'm trying to get at here is that, yes, the gospel should go wild, but Jesus himself makes it clear, you know, it's amongst the least of these that we find the presence and power of God. And that should be the task of the church, servicing, empowering the least of these, which is what I think the people outside are trying to get at. The least of these, the global poor. I have a question here um, which is very much to do with the people outside the front here. Um, if we shouldn't believe the church about Jesus and that he is a political revolutionary, should we be camped outside rather than sitting in here? It's obviously quite a hot potato for us at the moment um, in terms of our organisation um, internally and our reactions to it in the, in the wider world. Uh, I would go, I'd look at the biblical text and stories of Jesus. We know that when Jesus cleanses the temple, if you read the narrative in Mark, at the end of it, there's a, there's a nice little verse where it says, they were there till night. They occupied the temple. They didn't just cleanse it, they were doing an occupation. So for me, yes, occupation is part of the New Testament tradition. You know, the whole idea of unmasking power so that you can liberate other people is what Jesus does when he cleanses the temple. Unmask the religious power to give the vo a voice to the voiceless. So, yes, I would say, you know, um, uh, metaphorically speaking, yes, we should be outside. We should be siding with those who say it is time to put 
to an end an economic system that leaves two billion people every night going to bed hungry and another two billion at the top going to bed stuffed. It's just not biblical, it's not Christian, it's not humane. And so yes, I'm on the outside, despite being on the inside. You are on the inside, Robert, as well. You're, you're, in, you're on the inside. And I, I suppose my answer to that question is absolutely those who are camped outside are expressing something extremely important and something that, of course, you know, uh, people have said they can imagine Jesus being born in the camp, they can imagine Jesus being there, have no difficulty with that whatsoever. But Jesus did not only cleanse the temple, Jesus taught in the temple, Jesus attended worship in the temple, Jesus was a devout Jew. And there's a, there's, you know, there's a, t there's a desert tradition which says the most you can say about God is that God is not elsewhere. Double negative. God is not elsewhere. And in here, God is not elsewhere. Inside, as well as outside. And I say that as, as a person who, obviously, personally, spent a lot of my life praying in this place and a lot of my life... Uh, crafting and helping to craft services that were in their own in their beauty and in their eloquence trying to articulate something of the gospel of Jesus Christ and there is a philosophical link in my mind between beauty and justice that if liturgy is authentic if if the if the service if the praying is rooted in the real experience of real people then in a beautiful building like this if the lit, if the if the worship is authentic then it will help us to live differently and there is no point in building a mausoleum where you have empty rhetoric and and meaningless singing but there is a huge point there is there is a there is a pregnancy in the beauty of a liturgy in a beautiful building that will enable you to leave the building and live differently and live more justly. And that's what liturgy in this place should be. Jesus established no church. He created no liturgy. He left a manifesto and he left principles and tactics for his followers, followers to use during, after his death. For me, that should be the focus of the church. We have in this country lost the battle for evangelizing the nation through the traditional means. People coming into church doesn't work. The people outside the church, that is, for me, the future of the church. Can I ask you a question then, Robert? Can I pick up on that? And is it, this is a question which has come from the floor. Is, is, um, is it possible to have power and follow Jesus? And I'd amplify that by saying, is it possible to be a capitalist and follow Jesus? Ken Costa, as you know, a very uh, well-respected um, uh, Christian and banker and uh, a friend of mine has been uh, asked to come and help in this situation. He was on the radio talking about it this morning. Is, that, is, that, is it possible to be a capitalist? Well, you know, um, the kids that I work with at universities often ask this question, but they ask you about hip-hop. Can you do real hip-hop and be a multimillionaire like Jay-Z? You know, um, uh, we throw out in our hip-hop class, you know, and, uh, that, you know, it's a similar kind of issue. Can you have all that money and really do real hip-hop? And the answer is no, you can do a form. Can you be that rich and wealthy and be truly Christian? Of course you can be Christian, but it's going to be a certain type of Christianity. 
the type of Christianity that I was brought up in, that I read in the biblical text and reading the story of Jesus, is that real wealth is when you give it away. Real power is when you give it away. You know, um, I couldn't have tens of millions of pounds and be knowing that young girls are being trafficked from the north of Ghana to the south of Ghana in the sex trade because their parents can't afford to feed them. You know, so yes, of course you can be a capitalist. You're going to be a certain type of Christian, aren't you? And there are very few, there are very few forms of ethical capitalism out there because ultimately you've got to step on somebody's neck to, be, to, to make a buck. You know, so let's be honest about it. We have an economy which has been developed over centuries by brutalizing other people. Fact. Just travel around the developing world. Just look at where your foodstuff's coming from. Or, when you go home tonight, watch my film on Ghana on YouTube in nine parts, and it will, Great African Scandal, which is all about how our capitalist economy is occult. It is demonic, I would argue, to be part of an economic system that repeat, systematically brutalizes, impoverishes, steals the life of the poorest on the planet. It's occult. So do I want to be a billionaire capitalist and praise God? I, 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 you know the story about this. Let me, uh, so I get Pentecostal now, you know it's what I okay, mean? But, um, it reminds me of when I went to Elmina, the, the slave port in Ghana. Quick story. When the Portuguese had the port, right next to the governor's quarters, where the female slave quarters were, where the governor had a little ladder, where he could rape a woman every night, right next to that, the Portuguese built a chapel. So they were praying and worshipping while this rape was taking place. When the British took over, they moved the chapel to the top, so they could look down on the rape taking place. For me, that is often what we've done in terms of church life. You know, we have been Christian in a context of brutalization. Capitalist, Christian, context of brutalization, for me the two, two don't work together. But like I said at the beginning, Christianity came to my people at the edge of the colonizer's sword. We were made into commodities. So for me, I can't do capitalism and Christianity, not Anglo-Saxon capitalism, not Western capitalism and Christianity. They don't work. Thank you. I, I want to move on in a little while to um, some more questions about the character of Jesus and, and some of the theology. Lucy, just before we, we leave this subject, perhaps temporarily, if you would like to ask more questions about it then, and ask to talk about it, then please um, write them and put your hands up and let's have them in. But Lucy, you, uh, you and I have worked here um, in this building. We are in the centre of the City of London, one of the financial hubs. How do you react to... This, this question. Mm. I think that, I mean, that Christianity has been complicit when it preaches a prosperity gospel, when it says that if you do good, God will reward you with economic wealth. And there are plenty of Christian churches around the world today preaching that gospel, that economic wealth equals uh, righteousness. Um, and so I to the extent that I think Christianity has been complicit and is continuing to be complicit in that kind of focus on material wealth, then yes, absolutely. I, I do, going back to Jesus of Nazareth though, I do uh, ask in, in my own personal prayer Jesus to judge me 
because there is no one else who can judge me. And I cannot judge any other individual. There is a very strict injunction for me from Jesus, do not judge others, and that's an absolute given. So I'm very, what, what I worry about in the critique of the system, which is perfectly reasonable and passionate and good, and certainly if there are, if there are, uh, the, 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 there, are, there are many around the world who have suffered as a result of capitalism. That is absolutely clear. But I, I worry about uh, a kind of self-righteousness that claims that this particular economic system is one that Jesus endorses. Either way, prosperity gospel or an anti-capitalist uh, solution. I don't think that that is possible. The debate must happen, but you can't claim Jesus for one of those. And, um, and of course, going back to something Robert said, that uh, uh, I know, actually, I think you might both, both have said it or hinted at it. If any political party can grab hold of Jesus, um, and we know from the stories of the Crusades that, and, and the terrible atrocities which have, which have happened uh, throughout history, how do we make our choices and decisions mm. in the light of the information that we receive from I, the political parties or the church? This the, is this is why I think. I mean, I absolutely agree with Robert in the sense that there is an there is a. Uh, in terms of there's a question of authority, the apartheid regime in South Africa used biblical models to justify apartheid. Wicked, but was absolutely accepted by many Christians at that time. There, there are many systems that, I mean, that's one of the most recent. There are many systems that you can uh, cite from uh, human history where Christians have been, or Jesus has been used to shore up one ideology or another. And that's why I think it is really important to uh, have the discipline to let God be God. That doesn't make Jesus apolitical, and it doesn't simply spiritualize Jesus' message, but it does say that it is, uh, it is arrogant and self-righteous to claim Jesus for one particular ideology or another. Um, I would say that, in, in response to that, look, people have always told lies about God. You know, people have always appropriated the biblical tradition to justify atrocities. And it isn't a modern reality. It's something that happens in the biblical world. We know that there was no great marching army that went into the land of Canaan. There's no archaeological evidence to support that. You know, so how do we end up with these stories of conquest? It never happened that way. The people trickled into the land and then later on wrote stories to big themselves up, make themselves look good told lies about God that included the idea that God supported genocide. God never supports genocide. People will tell lies about God. I think that for Christian people, the arguments are clear. Jesus says, make the needs of the people holy. People need bread. People need shelter. People need love. You make those holy. And it is possible to judge. How can we say that the economic wars taking place in Congo at this point in time, where we know there are Western companies involved in arming militias that steal land, kill people, have committed mass rapes to order in order to secure land for Western... You're telling me that we can't judge that? For me... The gospel provides the measure by which we should engage in the political world. 
it doesn't say be a liberal structuralist on the left. It doesn't necessarily say be a conservative behavioralist on the right. But it does tell us as Christian people to be prophetic. We've got to be the people who say, this is the way the world should be working, thus saith the Lord of hosts. Of course, of course, we can judge the violence that you describe, of course. I, I would never say that that was not the case. But I think that Christianity at its core, what did, what did Jesus say? He kept saying, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is near at hand. The kingdom of God is close at hand. The kingdom of God is upon you. What is that Basileia, that kingdom of God that he was talking about, or the new realm? If Kingdom is a, is a patriarchal and, you know, I mean, rightly feminists have uh, thrown out that word. So the new realm, what is that? What is that structure that Jesus is talking about? He does not provide a blueprint. But of course, he says, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a mustard seed. What's the, that, that sounds like I'm spiritualizing it. I'm not. The mustard seed is the smallest of the seeds. He's standing in Nazareth. The, the hills are covered in mustard trees. It's the smallest of the seeds, and it grows at the fastest rate, exponentially. It grows so fast into a huge tree that birds can nest in its branches, says Jesus. He is speaking, of course, poetically, but frankly, about what the kingdom of God is. That, to me, does not then translate into a specific set of political or economic proposals. But what I am saying is that it is a, it is a strong and fierce critique of a system that will include brutalizing others, that will include uh, an overdeveloped sense of competition, that will include verbal as well as physical violence. Of course, that will be a, a strong critique of that, but he does not uh, set out a, an understandable political manifesto that is easily translatable into British society in, in the 21st century. I would completely disagree. I completely disagree. I think that Jesus is the master tactician. He provides us with clear, concise principles upon which we can build. The feeding of the 5,000. The people are hungry. The disciples recognize that you can't teach them without feeding them. Jesus works out a plan of action that says to us as Christian people, we can't just talk about it. You have to do it. You have to do practical things to make sure the people get fed, to make sure that there is a just order out there, the doing of the word, not just the speaking of the word. The example of legion, there is no, and, and every other exorcism within the book of Mark, if the New Testament theologians are to be believed, are metaphors of driving out the oppressor the internal and external oppressor, the external oppressor being the empire of Rome. The oppressors that we face today are not just economic because the one that faces all of us is out there in the atmosphere. The empire of carbon that is brutalizing and will brutalize us all. So when Jesus says empire is a dangerous thing and needs to be cast out. I'm looking around today and trying to work out which empire do I need to cast out? Is it the economic one? Is it the carbon one? The blueprint is there. The problem is this. We have been taught not to see the strategies within the text because the strategies 
will make the strategies require risk. It's another thing that Christian people like to do too often, take risks, stick their necks out, be prophetic. It will cost us dearly. And more than anything else, it reflects badly on the church. As I said in my last point, we need to find other places where people are talking about God to reflect critically on what the church says because we have centuries of tradition that have taught us to be passive and to see Jesus as Jesus meek and mild, not Jesus master, tactician, revolutionary figure who demands that we not cop out of the struggle in order to fulfill the last part of the Jesus manifesto. Lead us not into temptation. Help us to have the moral courage to stand up and do what's right. I often say to my students, sorry, you know when you get Pentecostals talking, we never stop. Our sermons are two hours, you know, so I mean, this is, this is short for me. I'm, uh, you know, I often say to my students, who have you been studying in New Testament theology? And they name me all the theologians. I say, name one 20th century Western theologian who changed anything. Never think. And they come back and say, Bonhoeffer. I said, he didn't change, he didn't kill Hitler. The bomb failed. I said, go away. Tell me one Western theologian who changed anything. And they can't name him. Because there's only one who actually changed legislation, radically transformed the way that people think, Martin Luther King. We don't see, King isn't on the reading list of any university syllabus for New Testament theology or for biblical studies or systematic theology. The only theologian to change anything within the 20th century. It's the way in which the academy, it's an example of the way in which the academy has colluded with the church to teach students to study people who change nothing. What kind of theology is that? So what I'm suggesting is this, of course there is a blueprint. It's just that we have been tricked, hoodwinked, brainwashed into not seeing the radical strategies within the text because we've been taught to maintain the status quo rather than blow it up. Fantastic answers I'm, I'm from both of you. Um, Lucy, do you want to come back on that? You don't have to. I'm just looking at you in case yes, you're no, twitching. No, no, yeah, yeah, just just move on, fine. I'm, yep. I'm going to move away slightly from the, uh, from the political for the moment to, uh, to a much easier subject, which is the resurrection. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm going to read this question for you first of all and then just talk so you've got some time to think. It says here, this is a question from the floor, what happened at the resurrection? Did it really happen? And what does it mean? Now, of course, a former um, Bishop of Durham uh, got into a, a bit of a state um, when talking about the resurrection from the pulpit. I, gather, I think, I, was, it, was it struck by lightning, wasn't it, at one stage? Durham I think it was after. So I'm yes. hoping we won't get struck by lightning. No. But would you like to speak um, to this question? <laughs> the resurrection. Yes, I would. Um, again, I, I suppose the place to start as we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth this evening. The place to start is obviously in the Gospels. And what is this uh, truth that is communicated from, from the end of those Gospels? The truth that is communicated is that Mary Magdalene, a woman at the time for whom her testimony, there would have been needed to be 10 women in court to testify against the strength of one man. So women's testimony was thought to be a tenth as useful as men's. This truth was communicated to this one woman. And she went and told her male companions. 
and they didn't believe her. And they ran to the tomb and then they saw for themselves. Where I start with the resurrection is that I will not collude with those male disciples and say that Mary Magdalene was not telling the truth. So I believe her. So yes, I can and do believe in the resurrection. I've no idea what happened. There's no, there's no uh, evidence, of course, for bones disintegrating. And I mean, the, the, the thing that got David Jenkins into difficulty was that he said, it is not a conjuring trick with bones. And sadly, that got picked up, and it, he was suddenly, suddenly saying that it was a conjuring trick with bones. It is not a conjuring trick with bones. But the paradigm of life, death, life is true. It makes sense of the world for me. And that's why Jesus of Nazareth doesn't stay Jesus of Nazareth for me. Jesus of Nazareth becomes Jesus Christ and is the pattern and the paradigm by which I want to live my life. Death and resurrection is deeply problematic in liberation theologies for two reasons. One, because it's often been used as a way of maintaining the subordination of women and other minorities by suggesting that suffering is good, what we call redemptive suffering, that, all re redemptive, that there is such a thing as redemptive suffering and that therefore some people should suffer. It's the problem with much of the Christus Victor atonement tradition where somebody has to pay a price for, uh, for, for God had to pay a price and it leads us to believe that there's always going to be some kind of shedding of blood, some kind of suffering, some kind of terror in order for peace to be made. So it's a problematic theme. So we tend to focus more on two things. The life of Jesus, Jesus' strategy, and what the people do with the resurrection message. What do they do? Two things. First thing that happens is Pentecost. They get filled with the Spirit and they get empowered to take the message outside of their comfort zone. The first thing they do after, the, after that, Peter and John go up to the temple for prayer. And what do they do? They see a man lame from birth. And we've been taught to read that as meaning somebody in you know, a physical ailment. But I read it structurally. Lame from birth, somebody who has from birth been marginalized, put down, out of favor. And where do they place him? They place him daily outside the temple. The first thing they do with the resurrection message is confront people, can liberate people who have been structurally marginalized and critique the religious people for their conclusion with it. So what does the resurrection mean? Well, Pentecostal church tradition, we believe in a literal, physical, bodily resurrection. We, we, we read it that way. What do I, how do I understand it as a liberation theologian, as a political theologian? It is the message of hope that should inspire the hopeless and enable us to keep going and doing the things that God has called us to do, even when it seems like misery is going to have the last laugh. The resurrection says misery will not have the last laugh. There will be a victory at the end of this age. And as a consequence of that, the Christian people can risk everything because they know how the story ends. There's a request here, um, several requests actually, to discuss Jesus as God and to deal with that other great thorny topic that I've heard a number of preachers say they really dislike having to tackle, which is mm. the Trinity. And, well, how it works, it says here. I'm not sure any of us is quite in a position to state how it works. But could we say, could we say something, as you've just um, touched on the spirit as well, um, Robert, um, and there's a question to Lucy, which I'd like to bring in at this point as well, which is, where is the Holy Spirit in your picture of Jesus? 
So I'm wondering if we can have a spirit, trinity, Jesus, God mm. discussion. <laughs> a small order, I realise. I could tell a joke while you think about it, if that helps. Uh, I mean, I'm happy to kick off because it's very okay. easy for me because in the Pentecostal church tradition, uh, there's always been a tension between people, between what we say and what we do. Birth of Pentecostalism in the early 20th century at Azusa Street, 906, was important not only because it led to the, the, the formation of the domination, which I'm a part of, but also because it, it was led by African-American Christians who believed in a long tradition from Africa of the great high God. The idea that there is one sovereign deity that rules over all. This issue becomes a tension within the movement by 1913, 1914. When the movement is split by those who believe in the Trinity and those who believe in oneness. The idea that there is one God and have a modalistic approach to the Trinity. That God the Father, then there's Jesus the Son and then we end up with the age of the Spirit. They split and the split is raced. The people who believe in the one God are predominantly African-Americans. There's a reason for that. This tradition coming out of Africa, of one high God, which when it confronts the traditions of the New Testament and Trinity, doesn't accept it. So for me as a Pentecostal, I live a contradiction. We believe in the Trinity. We're not sure how it works, but we actually practice a oneness modalistic tradition. It's a happy relationship. There's a, there's a kind of a man, it, the Trinity becomes a mantra in the Christian church if we're not careful. I'm using mantra slightly pejoratively there, for which I apologize. But there, there becomes a kind of a mantra where you have to say them all in the right order and you have to say the right words in the right order, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you don't say the right words in the right order, somehow it doesn't work or the Trinity has stopped existing. And one of the really important things is to release... Uh, is to release the Trinity, the, tr the life of the Trinity, from that, again, reductionist strategy, which is all about uh, trying to control the uncontrollable. The Trinity is ungovernable and uncontrollable. And there is, uh, I, I think, is a rather beautiful pattern of perhaps how God is, uh, where there is a relationship at the heart of God. God is not... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in that hierarchical order, sometimes known pejoratively as two blokes and a bird. The Trinity is not, the Trinity is not that. The Trinity is, as some theologians would call it, perichoresis, an eternal dance. There is an energy at the heart of the universe, and it is that energy which is poured out into Jesus of Nazareth, which moves me on to uh, Jesus being God. There is a kind of a, a, the word is kenosis, a kenotic energy, which is poured into Jesus of Nazareth, which makes him absolutely free from, although he is, of course, uh, Jewish, under, living under occupation, and a man, which has been, I wish Jesus hadn't been a man. Many times when I've been preaching, uh, preaching sermons, and I've said it publicly in the pulpit of this cathedral, it's problematic sometimes for women that Jesus is a man for very obvious reasons, which I won't go into. But uh, the canotic the energy of the Trinity releases Jesus at the resurrection from, be, from those straight jacketed political realities of Jesus of Nazareth's life. Male, Jewish, 
uh, living under occupation. Those things are true, they're real, and they are important, as we've been discussing. But the Trinity releases Jesus from those. So Jesus is alive today and is able to empower all of us to make the world a more just place. How that happens uh, is something that I'm saying is an, elu is an elusive thing. But the energy, which is the only word I can think of to describe that, uh, that kind of central reality, that eternal dance, which is poured into the life of Jesus of Nazareth, which is then poured into the life of the world, means that the spirit has been alive in the world before Jesus, of course, and after Jesus. So we are able to make political decisions, but those political decisions are not simply about what is in front of us and what we can see through our five senses. Those political decisions are informed by a deep, radical rootedness in the life of God. And that's what Jesus tried to come and show. Question that we've had um, from several people here is how how we can avoid seeing Jesus in our own image. You've, you've referred to this in your um, presentations, and of course it touches a little bit, I think, on the on the political again. But also um, for us, I, I too remember the stained glass in my parish church when I was a chorister of a very um, short-haired but blonde, very smooth, um, uh, suave-looking Jesus, miles away from the picture you've um, painted, Robert. How, how can we avoid seeing him in our own image? I think it's impossible. The question is, how do we engage in a meaningful yeah. dialogue so that one image doesn't dominate? Yeah. I think that it would be wrong to presume that we cannot create God in our own image. There are African theologians who argue that if the deity doesn't look like you, it can't be your deity, it can't liberate you. So I, I, I'm all for people representing Jesus in ways that are meaningful them, whether it's and that's what Christology is about. Who is Jesus Christ for us today? And if that means recrafting the image of Jesus as a woman, I think that's a perfectly natural and normal thing for Christian people to do, to make the Son of God one who understands who you are and engages with the dialogue with, with all of you as a person. I think that, that makes sense. The critical question is, which one dominates? And what we know in world history is that there has been a battle over which, imagery should, which image should be the dominant one and... There is so much invested in keeping Jesus male and white that it's almost impossible to, to let go of that. I often say to uh, my students again, imagine we're from great classes, I say, listen, well, you know, I'm, uh, when I argue this point with them about how much is invested in keeping Jesus that way, I say, let's take some paint and paint every single stained glass image black or brown. Oh, you can't do that. It's a criminal offence. Criminal offence. I said, it's not a criminal offence. It's because we've got so much invested in keeping God that way. That's the problem. So I don't mind. I, I think it's inevitable that we will make Jesus in our own image. The way out of that is a meaningful dialogue around the cross to avoid one image becoming the dominant one, which therefore, and, and as a consequence, the only way to represent Jesus. That's been the problem with much of Christian history. When I was at theological college, training to uh, be, actually training to be a deacon at that stage, because that was before women could be priests, I saw my very first picture of Jesus as black, painted by a Nigerian artist, and it absolutely blew my mind. It was a very powerful representation of Jesus for me, as Jesus, somebody very different from me. 
in terms of skin color. I then later saw my first artistic representation of Jesus as female. Very challenging. But if, Jesus, if we are at all to accept the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth and to accept the spirit of Jesus Christ alive in the world today, then it's not so much that we make Jesus in our image. I would use different words from Robert. But we find ourselves in Jesus, which means that Jesus Christ can be depicted as we are, whoever we are. And that's really important because we will not be able to be free unless we find ourselves in Jesus. And so therefore, locking Jesus up in a white male representation would be wrong. If I refuse to uh, see Jesus as anything other than female, I mean, that's clearly not right either. It's, it's, I'm agreeing with Robert on this, that there is an there's a, there's a issue about dominance and there's an issue about authority. And we have had 2,000 years of, in terms of Western art, one type of Jesus. I wouldn't necessarily go and paint out the stained glass windows, but I would say uh, that many different artistic representations of Jesus must be done now and are being done now. Because when uh, a, a black member of a congregation that I was involved in uh, about six or seven years ago, for the very first time, saw a picture of a black Jesus, she has not stopped talking about it. It was a very important moment for her in a different way from me. Jesus is free from our projections in that way. I think, I think, this, is, I think this is a very important um, thing. And I would ask a, another question, just before I, I ask you both to consider some, some final um, words to us, which is how do we, how do we throw off the, either the subjective interpretations or appropriations of Jesus or the ones that we feel have been handed down to us. I mean, looking, for example, at the ministry of women within the church, that's still a contentious issue, isn't it? It's very still difficult for people, and it's obviously emotional at the heart of their, mm. their faith. Mm. And I'm sure a lot of that is um, encouraged, developed by, by how we see Christ. Is there, how can we deal with that? It's, it's not easy. I think that, I mean, I certainly have to speak for myself. I've been conditioned by the pictures of Jesus that I've seen. I've been conditioned by the uh, study that I've done of the scriptures, of course. And I think that for, in terms of the ordination of women, um, in the Anglican church particularly, but I mean, it, you know, this could be true of any uh, pastors in the Pentecostal church as well. If someone who is radically different from Jesus is speaking the words of Jesus, take, eat, this is my body, this is my blood, then the congregation are really challenged because it, it, it has to engage our imaginations. If you are, if, if I'm sitting in church and I close my eyes and I essentially, I'm imagining, what am I imagining? A man with a beard in a sheet reenacting what Jesus of Nazareth did, that makes Holy Communion a memorial service. It's not a memorial service. It's a taste of a new future where all will be accepted. A bank the banquet is the picture that Jesus used where, uh, you know, border guards will sit next to the undocumented, where farmers will sit with environmentalists. The banquet of life. It's, it's an absolutely glorious picture of a new future, it, it requires our faithful imagination to get into that. And if someone who is radically different from Jesus of Nazareth is saying those words, then we're, we're challenged to use our imaginations. And that can only, in my book, be a good thing.
I think we need new tools. The tools that we've been using to interrogate the text and uh, construct our liturgies and our theology, they don't work. If they worked, we wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. Come on, it's not rocket science, is it? Again, I go back to the meta-narrative of my people. When my parents' generation came here, they were told to go to other churches. Now, you know, the tools don't work if you're, you've got people coming from other parts of the world who are part of your tradition. The tools don't work. We need new... We need new tools to interrogate the biblical text. I always work with ideological criticism. If we're asking structural questions about the biblical text, then it provides us with new ways of addressing structural issues that confront us here. Let's take the Lord's table as one example. We do this at my church all the time. I say to the pastor, why are we only reading the end of that passage? Well, that's the tradition. Yeah, but the tradition is wrong. The tradition doesn't, that you read the whole of the passage in the Corinthians passage, it's about the love feast. It's about economic and social injustice amongst the people and how they need to sort themselves out before they gather around the table. The two, the two work hand in hand. So if we, knew, we need new tools to interrogate the text and also what feminist theologians have talked about for 950 years, read against the text. The text is in many parts an imperialist document. You've got to read against it, asking a new set of questions to make the text come alive in new ways. And I think only then will we be able to sit in a congregation and learn and have learnt to see God in the other. Rather than talking about it, doing what the text requires us to do around the Lord's table, sort it out as part of your process of loving each other and then come and have the bread and wine or the um, ginger beer and hardo bread as they do in Jamaica. Um, uh, I have that afterwards. So we need new tools. One of the things that uh, uh, feminists, gay, black, Latin American theologians have talked about for 50 years is uh, read a response. Learning that we, read, we, we must read the text fully cognizant of who we are. If we do that, then we can, be, we can out our discrimination. We can out our limitations as a way of engaging in a wider, a wider a dialogue. Part of the problem is this in this context. We haven't, as Christian people, learned to deal with whiteness. What it means to be white and how whiteness is structured, made, remade in the social world, and how it feeds into a Christian experience. If you can, sociologists have been doing this for the last 25 years. Why can't the church do it? If you can deconstruct whiteness, you can deconstruct the cultural domination and cultural traditions that have informed the gospel and, and, and rework them. So we just, so, so in some a new set of biblical critical tools, a new set of tools to do liturgy so we can actually go back to what I said at the beginning, not just be in a tradition that talks, but does. Well, and obviously if you want to come and study with me, I am not, I'm just joking. No. <laughs> You're not on a commission new, basis. New, new tools. New tools. We need new tools. The, the old tools don't work. You know, I'm, uh, the, the classical tradition hasn't worked need new tools. Thank you for those terrific questions, um, which, as you can see, have really energised and galvanised our speakers up here. I'm going to ask if um, our speakers would give us some final thoughts now so we can bring the evening to a, a close. Robert, would you like to go first? Um, sure. There is something about that name. There is power in the name of Jesus. We have a young man at my church who was thinking of committing suicide. He lived on the top
top floor of a tower block on the 10th floor. And his wife had left him. He'd lost his home. There was no hope. He lifted the window up, put his foot outside the window, and through the corner of his eye, gazed at a Gideon Bible that his wife had left there. And he said, Jesus, if you are real, speak to me right now. Tell me something. To give, give me some hope. He took the Bible down. He opened it up. And thank God he read Genesis 1.1. In. He went back inside, put the window down. And next Sunday found himself at church. <laughs> I went to see a pastor at a church in Hackney that's full of people who were caught up in the worst kinds of vile activities in the city of London. Gun crime, gang violence, prostitution, hustling, gun running. And these people had all been, all had their lives radically transformed through the name and power of Jesus. So what I'm saying is this, is that no matter, you know, we cannot fully comprehend who Jesus was, who Jesus is, or what Jesus will be. But what I do know is this. For me, as a Pentecostal, there is something about that name. There is power in that name, the power for salvation, the power for social change, the power for justice in this world. And that is why I follow the teachings of Jesus. My last thought is that none of us, as we've said from this panel, can read the Gospels about Jesus stepping out of our own lives. We can't do it except as ourselves. So don't try. It is ourselves who is, you, you are the person who reads into Jesus who you are. And I would also say that the Jesus in the Gospels is a Jesus that leaps out of the pages of the Gospels. Yes, is elusive. Yes, will judge you and judge me as no one else can. But ultimately is a figure of hope for wherever you find yourself in the political and economic systems within which we live. An American theologian, Walter Wink, said, hope imagines the future and then acts as if that future is irresistible. That's what Jesus can bring. The life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus brings hope to imagine the future and then act as if that future is irresistible. We will be given the energy and the vision to do that. Thank you very much. I certainly feel incredibly challenged by a lot of what I've heard this evening, and I think that's a very important and a very good thing because um, belief without challenge, um, I think, is a rather weak thing. I have two brief reminders for you um, before we bring the evening to a close. The first is to say that there is a retiring collection for the Bible Society. Do please be generous with that. The second thing is to say, do please come to our meditative service at 6 o'clock on Sunday, which is connected with these debates. We're um, looking at two characters uh, in the New Testament, the, the female deacons, Phoebe and Chloe, in discussing women's ministry in the church. And my final task is to say thank you very much to Lucy, thank you very much to Robert, thank you to you for coming and for your input, and please do come back and support us here at St Paul's in the Institute debates in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Well done. Good job at sharing. <laughs>